0: Welcome to the People Action Results Podcast with me, Jeremy Campbell, from the Black Isle Group. In episode number one, I interview Dr. Heather McKee, a behavioral change specialist and an international keynote speaker. Heather creates evidence-based behavioral change programs to support people with the skills, the knowledge and the confidence to build healthier habits that last. She's delivered change programs to Unilever, TikTok, HSBC, Deloitte and Vodafone to name a few. In this episode we discuss the misalignment between well-being programs and company culture, the best ways to re-energize depleted workforces and employees, the differences between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and how the best businesses implement a people-focused philosophy. I really hope you enjoy this episode of the People Action Results Podcast. Welcome to the People Action Results Podcast with me, Jeremy Campbell from the Black Isle Group. I'm absolutely delighted today to welcome uh, Dr. Heather McKee, who is a behavioral change specialist and international keynote speaker. Heather creates evidence-based behavior programs um, and talks and has supported many organizations, many of the leading brands around the world, Unilever, Sainsbury's TikTok, uh, HSBC, Vodafone, to name a few. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Dr. Heather McKee. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. <laughs> delighted to be here.
0: Your background's quite unusual, isn't it, really? Because you're a, that rare thing, which is a, um, an academic, but put your kind of academia into practice commercially. And obviously, you've worked with some of the biggest brands in the world. So tell us a little bit about your background and tell us, tell us what you, you, you've been doing with um, some of these big brands.
1: Yeah, I suppose I am a bit of a, a rare breed in many ways. But um, actually, I think at the start, when I started out, actually, back in the day, behavioral science wasn't really a field. Um, you know, it was certainly not the field it is today. And it certainly didn't have the credibility that it, it now has. Actually, I, I I kind of got started when I was working in a um, I was working in a hospital um, for people with metabolic syndrome, and they were people that you know would have um, early markers of heart disease or diabetes um, or struggling with obesity. And at the time, you know, we had all the perfect uh, plans. We had a nutritionist that was working with them. We had personal trainers. We had everything, and yet none of these people could really get. Things to stick, and now they all were um employees in the hospital, so it's really important that actually they functioned as highly and they could perform as highly as they could, and yet they were all struggling um with their health um, and as an impact, it had a huge impact on their work um, so I ended up sitting down with each of these people to talk through well what were the barriers, what was holding them back and and I think that's what really ignited my love and joy and interest in behavior change, but what was quite interesting was I was like... Is there a career where you chat to people about their barriers? <laughs> do you talk to people about why they can't engage? Um, but yeah, that led to ten years in academia, and you know, I, I was I was lucky enough to be in the field of behavioural science, and, and my, my research was really about you know how do we get people to create habits that last, um, and not just uptake habits but sustain habits, and and um, that was where my real passion is. You know, it's like how do we actually get people to engage with things day in day out because. I That's where the real results come. It's not in days or weeks; it's in months and years that we start to see those benefits over time. So, yeah, it was it was it was a bit of an interesting leap from academia into um, I was going to say the real world, but uh, (laughs) I suppose the the pragmatic world or the corporate world. um, And 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 often, you know, it was a bit of a struggle. I, I wouldn't be I'd be lying if I said it wasn't because you know in in academia, everything's so rigid, and and, and there's so much rigor um, around everything that you do. And then, you know, you come out into the real world, and they're like, well, our budget is X, so we can only do Y. And, um, you know, we need to meet these KPIs at the same time. And um, so, you know, you you need to come a little bit more flexible in your approach. Um, And the other thing is, as well, you need to make things accessible for people. Um, And what I mean by that is, get people excited about behavioral science. Like a lot of the companies I work with, what I normally do start with is actually doing a talk to their staff to get people engaged and excited and understand how Behavioral science could work for them in the context of their lives, and often that's you know a nice way to kind of heighten people's motivation and get them interested in how it can then help them as an organisation. Um, but I have to say, I'm really, really lucky. I I pinch myself most days. Um, you know, it's such a fascinating, well, from my point of view, anyway, an exciting field to be in, and, and you know it's ever evolving, and I, I learn as much from my clients as they do from me. Um, and yeah, I feel very grateful to be in this field
0: amazing and tell us a little bit about the kind of the behavioral change at the, at the crux of it I'm really fascinated in this and and some of the work we do at Black R which is we you know we believe about you know we, we've spoken about this before about the consistency of the actions really gets the results but it's a really it's an easy thing to say isn't it which is well why didn't you just take the actions and you know and if you do the right things every single day you get the results it's like well thanks ever so much that's brilliant Jeremy but yeah. actually <laughs> it's really difficult to do right because because we're human beings we're not actually wired to do that consistency of the actions and then we fight against all other things don't we and it's like kind of the whole there's a whole kind of environmental thing of where we are with our families and workplace and goodness knows what else so the the you know the well-intentioned you know Monday morning right this week is <laughs> going to be the week this is the week I'm not gonna eat rubbish food I'm gonna eat really well this week every and then you know it gets to like Monday evening you've had a rubbish day at work and you think Do you know what I'm gonna have a biscuit why not because yeah. you know next week or well I'll start next week and it's always next week isn't it just, just talk to us a little bit about that because it talks about the kind of part of the science but also the real pra- practicality of it and and the way that you overcome that you know it's easy to say much harder to do
1: yeah it's really hard isn't it because we come in with such well meaning intentions but it's turning our intentions into actions you know that's where we, we kind of fall back and you know, you see it every new year as well, you know, that we're like, okay, well, I'm going to give up sugar, I'm going to go running, I'm going to be nice to my other half, I'm going to meet all my targets at work, I'm not going to be stressed, I'm going to be kind to my children, I'm going to give money to charity. And you know, the funny thing is, the more goals you add in, the more you take away from your focal goal. It's in concept in psychology, now know, it's goal dilution. Um, But I I think the main issue that a lot of us come up against is that So often we're given what I call the ingredients of change. So, you know, we, how many of us don't know that we need to eat more vegetables or haven't been told that before, or we need to manage our stress or we need to move more or we need to sleep better, you know, knowing these things doesn't necessarily instigate change Um, and you know ultimately when it comes to well-being programs it's implementation not information that matters but yet we think that we can educate people you know and and give people information all of the time and we're like well if I just knew the perfect diet for me or if I knew the exact exercises to do or if I only read more sleep hacks then I'd be able to make the change but the problem is that we can have the perfect ingredients But it's actually taking those ingredients and applying them to our life where we're missing things and and that's where behavioral science comes in i like to think about it as a method in the recipe for help so it's actually how we take those vital ingredients and actually look at well what are the goals what are the skills what are the habits what are the routines that i need to develop in order for them to fit in with the context of my life how can i be resilient against failure how can i pick myself up time and time again how can i revise a goal that maybe is a little bit too difficult and that's often the piece that we miss it's actually the vital methodology Because ultimately, you know, if you keep failing, it's often not you that's failing, it's your method that's failing you. And if you can change your method, then change can happen. And that's what behavioural science is all about. It's about the methodology in that process of change. And it's something that we often overlook.
0: Just talk to us a little bit about your work that you do with organisations, because my background, um, HR director, you know, uh, I implemented, and and I know you're cringe, I implemented several you know well-being programs the normal kind of thing well you know let's let's have a healthy and, and and a vibrant workforce and we go off and we set these programs up but they're not they're not necessarily they're not necessarily set up for behavioral change they're, they're set up for change but of course you know as we know change is very difficult so well-meaning corporate well-being programs of well let's get some more fruit in in the uh, in the office clearly just don't work. So t- tell us a little bit more about the work that you do and, and how do you get this stuff to stick, really? I think that's the, the real challenge, right?
1: Yeah, how long have you got? <laughs> you know, it, and I, I would say, you know, it's hard. And behavioural science is as much art as it is science, you know. And, and I think the artistic part is actually working with the values and the culture of the, of the company that you work with. You know, understanding... What does well-being mean to that company? You know, a lot of people don't really understand what well-being means to them, what well-being looks like for their employees. You know, what does it mean to be well? What are you actually shooting for? What is your definition of wellness? And how does that reflect your team's priorities? How does that reflect your ROI? How does that affect your bottom line? Uh, Another question Often, you know, I ask is, how do you know you've got enough wellness in your organization? You know, what is enough? Because, you know, often we're looking at certain markers. They might not be the right markers. They might not be related to what's most important for us in terms of building well-being. And I think one of the key things really with any organization before we even think or start to talk about well-being is to think about um, well-being in the, in the long term. Um, not just short term. And, And there's so much in business that we do this. But when it comes to well-being, we think, okay, well, we'll just do X, Y and Z and then suddenly people will be well. And it doesn't work like that. If you want to implement a real well-being culture, you know, we need to kind of it requires an investment that pays off in the long term and sometimes some sacrifices in the short term. And I think companies, before they even start a wellbeing program, they need to acknowledge that. But then they also need to think about, well, where else in the business have we had to have short-term sacrifice for long-term gain? Because essentially that's what building habits is about. It's about, you know, having those short-term sacrifices. Now we can make them fun, we can make them enjoyable, we can make them easy to do. But ultimately we have to have an eye on the long game. We have to understand that. You know, I always say in my talks, you know, habits are for life, not just for January. You know, it's not like we, you know, create all our habits in January and then we're done um, you know, for the rest of the year. You know, if we're no longer following them, they're no longer habit. And so it's very important from the get-go that people and organizations understand, well, what is our definition of wellness? What is enough wellness for us? And what do we want long-term out of this? And what are we willing to sacrifice short-term? Because it may be that they come to the conclusion that right now we're actually not capable of taking on and committing to a wellbeing program in the way that we wish to. Um, so I think that that's really important. I think it's very important, as Simon Sinek would say, to start with why. And what I mean by that is, Why are you doing this wellbeing programme? How does it reflect your values of your organisation? Because that's often where people go wrong is they kind of put wellbeing onto their employees and it becomes just another thing that people have to do in their day rather than actually working with the employees in a way to actually really understand, well, what's necessary? and what's not and what's relevant and what's not and communicating well-being program that is fully in line with organizational values and culture is really really important because otherwise employees can see right through that and they see that it's not sincere and it's not genuine and I think that that's really really important and if we want to create that long-term change that actually you know we start to work with people to understand their definition of wellness what it means to them as well as what it means
0: to us as an organization. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And uh, and just one thing that you said there, which really resonates with the work that we do is, is, you know, it's also about, do I want to change, right? You can't change anybody. You can, you can put, you know, to your point, you can put the ingredients together. You can put the methodology together. You can put an amazing program with amazing communications, but actually I don't want to change. I'm never going to change and and I, you know we see it all the time and there's nothing wrong with that i mean who are we to say for anybody who wants to change just interested in 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 how you deal with that because because if you get a hundred people there won't be a hundred people who are going to say yeah i'm going to embrace this this well-being program and you know i want to i want to change my behaviors mm-hmm. some people um, in our experience some people definitely will be Oh, I'd really like the end angle, but I'm not really too sure. I want to do all that <laughs> that hard work, hard <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. which is often what you get. You know, which you know, we all do. Let's be honest; would love all of us would love the silver bullet, right? Which is what could if, mm. is it's something we can do just quickly? And of course, in in our experience, there's not such a thing. It's unfortunate you do have to do the hard yards as well, right?
1: Yeah, and and the important thing is, you know that. um we see the contribution that well-being makes to our lives um, because it's hard and uh, if it's been put upon us and what I mean by that is that we don't feel autonomous in taking on those decisions and, and for those that don't want to get involved I think it's such a beautiful window to understand and involve them not in the well-being program but to listen to understand you know why they don't want to get involved because if you don't value their opinions it doesn't make employees feel like you value them and so those that aren't employ- uh, you know engaging you know it be interest- i always find it interesting to know what, what's their obstacle to participation and when we you know when before i even begin to set up a wellbeing program I think about a wellbeing program with a company i want to talk to a whole spectrum of employees across the board those that always participate those that never participate to understand what the potential solutions are But Jeremy, you touched on a very important point, which is we need to always offer an emergency exit for people from any program that we ever offer or from anything, really, because not everyone has to participate. And actually, people have different levels of readiness to change, and they change at different rates. Some people, you know, are willing and and information seekers. Others like to sit back and watch for a while before they dip a toe in. And we have to respect that people change at different rates. And so the the, you know, the the programs that engage people the most are those that offer that level of autonomy. They offer that emergency exit. You know, they allow people to make choices and decisions around what they want to engage with and what they don't. And they also... Um, if you go back to actually, you know, one of the primary theories that's really instrumental in helping support engagement um, is self-determination theory, and that's theory of motivation. And it's less about how much motivation you have, but more about what fuels it. And it talks about these three basic needs. And, and the three basic needs are of every individual, every living, breathing person is autonomy, competence and relatedness. Do we have choice? Do we feel ownership in our decisions? Do we feel confident or competent to be able to carry out the tasks that are required of us? And do we feel connected to others? And it absolutely goes for life. And it goes the same exactly for well-being, developing well-being programs. Are we letting people have choice and ownership and responsibility in that choice? Are we slowly building their competence? Are we allowing wellbeing programs to access people at different levels of competence. And are we creating relatedness? Are we helping people feel like they're part of something larger than themselves? Have we got ro- role modeling? Are we role modeling the behaviors? Are we, you know, creating opportunities for collaboration across the organization? Are we valuing people's opinions, even if they conflict with what we were trying to create? And um, I think that's really, really important if we want to have future engagement that we really look at these three pillars and actually understand how, how is our wellbeing programme supporting each of these?
0: Yeah. And it, again, you bring up the, 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 kind of the whole intrinsic drivers that I, it, I find fascinating and the, the, you know, the work that, and, and it's a kind of slight nuance to it, and the way that Dan Pink in his book drive, he, he talks about autonomy, uh, mastery and, and, um, and purpose, which is you know, similar to, to what you just said, in terms of drive and engagement, and and the purpose one for me is really important. Which is, do I buy into what this business is doing? You know, if I mm. don't, if I don't buy into it, and particularly sort of just an interesting kind of concept of Gen Z's coming into the workplace. That that generation really, really do buy into overall, even more so I think than than other generations. Not that they don't of whole purpose. You know, does does this organization does this business? is it going in the in the direction is it's got a set of principles values that I buy into Um, and then again it goes on to the kind of one of the things that that is interesting what you've just said is I think most people do turn up to work don't they wanting to do a good job I think most people want to do a good job I think a few people kind of think oh you know I'm going to go to work today and do a rubbish job most people don't most people actually want to do a decent job and and that goes back to sort of intrinsic drivers again. Do I believe in this business? And very very similar to what you were saying. So that's it's fascinating. Um,
1: yeah, no, I think it's important that, like, you know, we do connect with that intrinsic motivation um, in many ways and that line managers and managers can help can com- you know, articulate that to employees, whether it be about a task at work or whether it be engagement in a wellbeing programme, you know, a simple question, what does this give me back? You know, if I, if I'm engaged in a wellbeing programme, you know, if you can see it rather than being, oh, well, I have to do this step count challenge because we're tasked with doing this and, you know, or I have to go to this lunchtime yoga, even though it makes me cringe, you know, because I feel like, you know, I, I'll I'll be the odd one out if I don't. You know, actually if you say, Well, what is it gonna give me back? Okay, well actually it gives me more energy at work. I feel more calm, I feel more connected with my other with the other employees. Equally when it comes to, you know, doing your tax returns you know you can ask yourself the same question rather than you know being like oh this is so annoying I can't believe I have to do this you know or like you know if you have to do a difficult project at work and you feel disconnected with the purpose behind it you know if you can stop for a second and say well what contribution does this make okay you know maybe it feels makes you feel more capable more competent maybe it allows my team to push forward with something else you know tapping into that intrinsic motivation is really important really empowering because. I like to say, if you can find your why, you can find your way. You know, it's often helps people engage with something long term, whether it be a well-being habit or a workplace habit. Um, you know, it's very, very important to actually reconnect with what contribution does that give? Why does it, what does it give me back?
0: I'm really fascinated in um, some of the work that you've done. So talk, t- tell us a little bit more about some of the work that you've done with with organisations. So where, are you know... You don't have to name an organisation, confidentiality and stuff, but just tell us, you know, what what, what was the one programme you're probably most proud of looking back? And it may not be, the like, the perfect one. You know, it started off actually really difficult, but became better. I, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll leave it to you. <laughs> oh, God. Um,
1: yeah, it's a really good question. I think, well, if I was to say what what I've seen, you know, I I wouldn't say there is one... Um, program, but I would say there's particular themes in programs about around what works well. This is me <laughs> getting out of this question in a in a very diplomatic way. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, I think it's when companies are willing to um, adopt not just you know um, changes, but looking at just the, the physical as well as the psychological environment as well. I think is quite important. I think programs that work well is when. Companies are open to actually making changes, and not just in terms of add-ons, but looking at like are people being supported, are do they have unrealistic workloads or deadlines? Is there a long hours culture? Are there bad role models? Are managers not seeing red flags? Are they not reinforcing? you know positive things are they reinforcing rewarding you know bad culture companies that are open to addressing those key factors because those are so systemic and they're you know they manifest in absenteeism and burnout and stress when people are willing to look at those and that can have a massive impact and at the same time and something you mentioned Jeremy the start of the conversation is to look at the physical environment too you know Are there social collaborative spaces? Are we, you know, setting up our workplaces in a way that support well-being? Is there light? Is there ventilation? Is there nature? Is there places for people to relax? Is that being supported um, by your line managers, by senior leadership? Um, And the companies I see that are doing really well are people, are companies that actually support these psychological needs and these physical needs. And they provide that kind of forum for feedback as they work along the way. They don't imagine that they can just roll out the program and everything's going to be perfect. They're ready to learn from the failures. They're ready to iterate. They're ready to learn from people that disengage, that won't engage. Um, And they're ready to set up an environment where, you know, there's a culture of failure that people are um, supportive of actually and feel safe to admit when they're overworked, when they're, you know, overloaded, that they are struggling, that there isn't a badge of honor For being the busiest person in, you know, in on the floor, or you know, the most exhausted person on the floor, or the most burnt out person on the floor, and in fact, you know, the managers that do well are those that engage with emotional intelligence. They engage with empathy. They engage with ways in which they can spot those red flags in their employees and empower their employees to spot them red flags and feel safe enough to come to them. Um, I think that that's you know the, the level of systemic change that we need. You know. I do think fruit bowls are wonderful, you know, having an option for yoga, having an option for meditation, all of these are little environmental things, supports that makes, you know, the healthier choice, the easier choice. But we need to not just work on those individual things, but we also need to work on the bigger skills and the bigger strategy as well.
0: Yeah, I, I, there's so many parallels to the work that we do with you, and, and, and you know, it comes down to ultimately culture doesn't engagement, and, and culture, as we know, starts from the top, and and you, you can't put you can't change a culture unless that the, the frankly the top table in in organisations actually either a supporting or or, or or living it themselves. It's very difficult. It's that's what happens. It's it's what happens with uh with the the one-to-one conversations in our experience a lot of organizations mid-manager level uh, you know are, are normally have lacking in skills to have proper coaching supportive conversations with with teams and it's not a slant of mid-managers it's just most mid-managers have never been trained to do it and, and and it all kind of stems from those you know i'm having a bad week it's not been a great week okay so what can we do about it collectively to support you for next week, as opposed to, you know, the, the, the old-fashioned kind of, you know, command and control, well, you better you better sort your, your performance out for next week because it's not what we want. Well, no, it's not what, what the organization wants. So it, it, it's there's so many different – there's so many parallels. I'm also just curious about how have you found working, you know, pandemic, post-pandemic – and implementing well-being strategies with now what is it is and you know it is predominantly a um, you know a, a varied workforce, isn't it? Both in office and, a, and at home. How have you found that?
1: but do you know what? One positive thing is that I feel like people are can see. And make the connection between well-being and output as an organisation. Um, that there's much, it's much more tangible for people now, and and actually people are acknowledging that you know they want to. You know they've got to be um, dynamic if they want to retain their employees, and they also have to offer them a certain level of support because we're not, you know, we don't operate in isolation. You know, we don't just have one part of us that shows up for work. You know, we we need to actually integrate other parts of us as well, and 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 organizations that do that well you know that support their employees with their well-being maybe you know with their financial well-being their social well-being and other aspects actually you know are tend to be those ones that that tend to thrive and not just from the happiness from their employees but that's also translated into the bottom line for for the organization and people that see the parallels with that tend to be the ones that do the best um but the thing is what we're there, it brings other challenges, and then and one thing that a lot of companies are struggling with now is that relatedness piece. Um, so we're promoting autonomy, we're letting people be flexible in their work and it's important to do that and where people are showing that they're responsible and they can be trusted at home but now what we're missing is that relatedness piece where um you know you can stop and, and ask the person at the desk next to you a question rather than have to organize a zoom call for next tuesday to pick something up that you feel like you can be more vulnerable um, you know at work or show your yourself at work when you're face to face but you don't you know, it's, it's harder for people to feel like that um, uh, virtually. And often, you know, people are, are losing motivation to actually engage with their teams. Uh, they're also feeling, um, I was only talking to my father-in-law about this yesterday, they're also feeling that when they come into work that they're not getting enough work done and actually then things are piling up, um, you know, when they're in the office and they're not kind of being able to kind of sort through things at the same rate. And, uh, you know, senior level need to be able to, you know, support that because actually, you know, it, they need to be able to value that face-to-face interaction and the importance of that on a certain level. And if we can't get that in in work, we need to be encouraged to get that in other ways in our lives because our social health is one of the most important facets of our mental health, our physical health. You know, there's, everyone knows the famous Harvard studies where they found that one of the primary factors above smoking above poor diet above lack of exercise is social connection and so we need to feel connected in work and that's something that's suffered um, as a result of the pandemic and we're only now learning the best ways in which to build that back in
0: yeah and, and i had this conversation only this morning exactly what you just said about the loss of ad hoc mentoring in the workplace. You know, we're all we're all probably been um, lucky enough to being able to to have it over the years. Which is exactly as you say, it's the gosh, I just had a terrible conversation with somebody or a client or whatever, and somebody says, "Well, why don't we just go for a you know walk or you know coffee, go for a beer, whatever it was." Um, but it was that ad hoc kind of bit of bit of advice, and um, that's pretty much gone because you know, you've had a, a bad interaction with somebody, it's unlikely you're going to phone somebody. It's unlikely you're going to pick the phone up and uh, or get on a Zoom call and think, oh, I just want to have a conversation with somebody. It's just, and that, that, that's lost. So where's ad hoc mentoring? There's a whole, you know, there's a whole workforce. My son, is, you know, he's been at work two years and he's been in the office that he works for this, it's a large business, uh, six times in two years. <laughs> his his whole his whole life he 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 thinks the, you know the world of work is zoom calls <laughs> it's, it's it's really you know it, it, there is a kind of a hangover isn't there to the pandemic and we're still not back in the workplace uh, as such are mm-hmm. we i mean pretty, and, pretty much.
1: something to acknowledge there as well it's like uh, that's how a lot of us make friends you know, we, we make friends in the workplace, you know, we, we connect over, you know, similar battles or similar barriers or difficult clients or whatever it, has, it happens to be. But especially people of your son's generation, you know, we're missing that whole tribal element of actually all being connected and pushing towards a similar goal. And that's such a massive part of our well-being. And it's such a massive part of our engagement work as well. You know, we want to show up to work because we enjoy the the people that we work with we feel part of something bigger than ourselves and that relatedness is vital to long-term health but also you know for organizations to retain their employees
0: yeah and culture right build building cultures It's hard to build a culture when but not everyone's together exactly to to say it's it's relationship building really i suppose as its essence i've really enjoyed this conversation i've got a couple more questions for you um one we, we kind of like to finish off with um a bit of advice from you really what what was the best piece of advice that you've been given that you've kind of lived by or, or used throughout, throughout your career
1: yeah I I know I, I cannot I cannot remember who I can attribute this quote to um right now I'll have to kind of go back and look it up but I remember reading a quote a while ago and maybe this is not define my entire career but just you know where I'm at right now um but it was a quote that said success is about two things it's about mastering yourself and giving to others um and and by mastering yourself you can look at that in so many different ways and it kind of harks back to you know behavioral science that it's not just about knowledge but it's about skills and confidence you know how do you hone your skills how do you you know feel more confident and more competent over time what are the small steps you take to get there and also you know how much you give to others and the reciprocal relationships that you can create is, is so important because what else is work for? You know, that's what makes work purposeful. Make you feeling like you can make a contribution, be it to your team, be it to the world at large, you know, um, but feeling like, you know, you're purposeful in your, in your career is so important. So I've always thought that that's um, a beautiful kind of, I suppose, mantra to live by um, in your work, which is, you know, master yourself and give to others. And all will be
0: well. Yeah, I like it. I really like it. Thank you for that. And then, lastly, uh, simply, how do people contact you? So, where where do people go? I know that you've got a brilliant website, and you know you've got some courses which which we've downloaded and used, and and they are brilliant. I can definitely vouch for that. How how do people contact you?
1: Um, well, I, I'm I love LinkedIn. So, um, do pop me a message on LinkedIn if you've enjoyed this, or you've got any follow up questions, or anything you want to find out about? I'm just Dr Heather McKee on LinkedIn and then my website is drheatherspeaks.com um or drheathermckee.co.uk. I've got lots of different ways you can contact me depending on what 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 you're what you're looking for support in what resources you're looking at but I do yeah I I I love meeting people on LinkedIn and finding out more about the challenges that they're struggling with on work. I'm constantly just you know trying to gather you know and understand more about people's barriers and and what's getting in their way so do drop me a message on linkedin let me know how you're getting on if what's going well in your workplace maybe what you're struggling with i'd love to hear
0: brilliant and look thanks so much for being on the podcast i really really appreciate giving up your time thanks so much
1: thank you jeremy i've really enjoyed it
0: i really hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the people action results podcast With dr heather mckee for more information please visit blackislegroup.com and follow us on our linkedin page the people action results podcast this is jeremy campbell from the black isle group thanks for joining us and i really look forward to catching up next time